Today I'll be reading for you Hebrews chapter 10 and preaching for you out of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to the end of the chapter, verse 39. Hear now the word of God. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot? the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to the reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore... Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us this day to hear this admonition and encouragement to endure to hold on to our confidence in Christ. Father, we ask for the strength to not shrink back, but to press on in faith, and that our souls would be preserved, and that our lives would be fruitful for the furthering of your kingdom and your glory. We pray that this would be so for this church and for your church, universal throughout the whole world. Help us, Father. We need your strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today's sermon is titled, The Need for Endurance. And you see here, endurance mentioned twice. And to be encouraged to have that endurance. What do you think of, I'm not asking you to answer out loud, it might go in a lot of different directions a lot of different directions. But what do you think of when you think of the word endurance? Interestingly enough, we know that 
The word endurance is often connected to sports. I know that Athena, not to highlight her, I know she's involved in a lot of endurance type races um, where you have to press on for a long time. And, and you know that connected to that, you can even go and you can find energy drinks or you can find sports food and drinks that are labeled endurance because it's interconnected to having that strength to press on in that long journey. Um, I think there is even maybe a deodorant that is called endurance that you, as you perspire, to be able to continue to stick with you throughout the difficulties of a hard day's work. And we see that type of analogy and that kind of illustration in the scriptures. Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 9 and 2 Timothy 4 talks about the race. He talks about the athletics. He talks about um, the military and the, and the necessity of being able to press on and that there's a reward we see in Second Timothy 4 that he is glad to have fought the good fight and to continue the race and he's anticipating that reward of that long haul fight. It is a bit of a godsend and a kind of a softball today. I think it really Hebrews 10 is probably one of the easiest sermons to, to look at for structure. Again, I mentioned last Sunday as I'm doing this, these studies on the, the proper way of coming up with a sermon, Hebrews 10 is just full of that kind of, it's got points, it's got illustrations, it's, it's just really a nice, strong passage to work off of. And as I was looking at the word endurance mentioned twice here and seeing that it was a focal point um, and thinking about even some of the Greek words that are inside of here, I thought about endurance races. One of the kind of endurance races that is not only done just by the human body, but is in race cars. Um, you can see, if you are aware of the racing circuits, that there are kind of races that we have over here in Bristol um, that are a little shorter races. They're fast and they're quick, but there's some that go for long periods of time. The, uh, in the race car world, endurance races are sometimes... 1,000 kilometers or 620 miles, 12 hours, or even 24 hours. They can go as long as 1,000 miles. So it's a long journey. It's not a, just a quick, short run. It's not a drag race where it's just a sprint. You know, the, the ones at uh, Bristol are longer than a, well, they have the drag races and they have the longer ones. But in endurance races or much longer and even has teams involved. You can go and pull over and have another driver come in because they're, they're so long. You can sometimes have two or four drivers per event. And so the endurance abilities of the driver is significantly required because the length of the race are, is tough. It's a very tough type of race. If you've ever seen the movie Ford versus Ferrari, um, those kind of, that's the same kind of race that's, that's going on. Um, which is a long and rigorous type event. There's a new movie, not to get too focused on movies, but it's, it's here. The, there's a movie out right now called Gran Turismo. And uh, the word Turismo is t- tourism or journey. And it, this, the, it's based on a true story, but it's about these gamers who are playing a video game called Gran Turismo who have an opportunity to go from the gaming world to an actual race car, to be trained to be race car drivers. One of the interesting things about endurance races for race cars is that different than maybe um, 
in some of the where it's just physical running or or some kind of physical fight in and of itself that the stakes are much higher. <laughs> Not saying that someone couldn't have a heart attack or fall and break their leg or get hurt, but you mess up when you're driving a race car. Um, it could be catastrophic. In fact, the quote in that movie. Um, the coach that is for this particular team in Gran Turismo, he's a little astounded by the idea of having to train these guys, these young guys who have spent all their times on video games to actually race in a real race car. He says, do you really think you're going to take a kid who plays video games in their bedroom and you're going to strap them to a 200 mile an hour rocket? It will tear them to pieces. And as I thought about that quote that I saw in a preview it's interesting that in many ways the church today is in that kind of place. We do a lot of online church. We can have all kinds of opportunity to give our opinions about what God is doing or what we think God is thinking. But people are leaving the racetrack, per se, from leaving the church. And they have this idea of what it's like to be the church where they're not actually on the track. And the thing that we see in this particular passage is that for the church, there are high stakes, even higher stakes for those in the church who want to claim the name of Jesus Christ, to claim the grace of Jesus Christ, but are not willing to fight the fight of Jesus Christ and to take up the cross of Jesus Christ. We are more comfortable being in our living rooms that are keyboards. The same coach was quoted in the movie. He says, all right. He's talking, to the, he's talking to the kids and he says, come on, let's go, you gamer kids. This must be a new experience for you. Last time you stretched your legs was to go get another packet of Hot Pockets from the freezer. You get tired, you get sloppy. You get sloppy, you get hurt. It's tough. It's tough to live real Christian life. Everything we see in the New Testament is highlighting the supremacy of Jesus Christ in his rest. But as I mentioned in the very beginning, as the writer of the Hebrews mentioned in the very beginning of this letter, is that we must strive to enter into that rest. And it's an interesting kind of call for us that Christ has, has accomplished the work in the rest. But as we are still here in this day, that there is suffering and there is striving, there is a need for endurance to hold on to the faith. And the Hebrews, the Christian Hebrews here, they were being encouraged not to give up, to remember their hope, to remember what Jesus Christ had done, but not give up. They could not just be a Christian in their living rooms. They couldn't just try to feed off of Hot Pockets in the freezer. They had to get on their feet and they had to go out and do the work and be on the path of what Jesus Christ has called us. And there is fear here. It begins in this particular passage, which is not the beginning of the admonition because we already have the encouragement that the past couple of sermons have been on. But it's saying here that if we continue to go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This is it. This is the real race. This is the real time. That in the Old Testament, we were trying to see things in shadow. Christ has come. You've been given the knowledge. You are now in the race car. The rubber is hitting the road. 
you must take this very seriously. You cannot continue to be slack. There is a proper fear here and an assurance of the power of Christ at the same time. It's much like what you see in Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's a very powerful phrase. To rejoice with trembling, to rejoice at the fact that we have a king, that we have one who is all-powerful, but we must do it with fear and respect. It says, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. We must have respect at what Christ has accomplished and what his purposes are so that we may be able to endure in the race to keep holding on to Christ. We can't just be glad that we've been given this title and this position in this place and this identity and then to ignore everything that that has to do with. So what is this sinning that it's being talked about here? It says, for if we go on sinning deliberately, there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. I think for a lot of people, this particular passage is a a little bit of a scary passage for people. And we've already hit a few like this in the book of Hebrews, where we start taking inventory of our, our lives and our sins and we go, you mean we can get to a place where there's going to be some kind of unforgiveness where if we do this one sin, if we do it one more time, it could be to snap, we're done, we're out. And I'm not saying that necessarily that's not a proper fear, but I think it's a shallow view of what is being said here. We have to look at the full context of what is being said in Hebrews and the admonition that's going on, we have to look at it in contrast to what was said just before or in connection in context to what was just said before. If you remember, there were the three let us's. If we invert those to be disobedient to the calling for us to do those three let us's, those would be the sins that I think are contextually being highlighted here. One would be believing and driven by a lie versus the truth and assurance of Christ in his victorious reign. In the previous passage, it said to to hold on with the truth, with an assurance of Christ, to hold on to that confidence of Christ's blood. But if we flip that over, if we believe and we are driven by the lie of the world, and we're no longer making the centrality of our lives that blood of Christ, In his victorious reign, we are allowing our lives to be shaped. We're off track. We're now running a 200 mile an hour car into the dirt and toward a wall. We must have Christ be the centrality of our focus in everything. He is king over everything. So it's not just the simplicity of did I make too many lies or did I... Um, cheat on too many taxes or did I do this or that it's a matter of what is your focus is Christ your only hope in life and in death is he the central component of your life and that's where we start that's where we should start do we have that confidence and if we're not 
having that confidence and we don't have that assurance in the truth of Jesus Christ, that's one of the biggest sins that we could commit. And everything falls from that point. And then secondly, let us hold on to our confession. It says here, if, you, if we're still sinning, we are abandoning our confession and we are wavering. It says to hold on to the confession without wavering, it is committing sin. It's, it's living in a life that's inconsistent with our confession that Jesus Christ died for our sins and came to destroy sin. If we are Christians, if we are claiming the name of Jesus Christ, if we're glad that we have his grace, if we are calling ourselves Christians to the world, but we go on sinning and not following his word, whether sins of omission or commission, meaning sins that we're just not doing what he told us to do in a positive way, or we are doing the things he told us in a negative way not to do, then we are, again, going right back to the first one. We are abandoning our great hope. And now we've abandoned our confession and we are wavering. We're not following the rules in which salvation that we have been given, that we are those who are saved from sin. We are going right back to it. And then lastly, this, let us love one another and to, to serve one another. To do, be about good works by not abandoning the assembly of one another. When, if we are committing the sin of neglecting to meet, to neglecting, neglecting to love and serve and to build up the body of Christ, we are ultimately, again, neglecting Jesus Christ. So we need to ask ourselves here in this church, in our own families, in our own lives, is Christ, is he the primary Assurance of our lives and his victorious reign? Are we holding on to the confession without wavering? And are we loving one another and striving with one another in building up the body of Christ? This is written to the church. This is written to us. This is not necessarily written to the world that this particular fear of judgment is highlighted to the people of God. It says in verse 26... That there's no longer a sacrifice, meaning that when you have said that you're holding on to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, but then you have not lived out that in faithfulness, there's nothing else to turn to. And in verse 27, it says that there is a judgment day drawing near, both in this day, today's sermon and yesterday, I mean, last Sunday, it was focused on there is a day drawing near to remember that Jesus is going to come to finish his work. And he is going to be focused on the church. We see in verse 29 that there's greater judgment for those who would trample the name of Jesus. Even more judgment for those who would just simply break the law of Moses. It's one thing to break the Ten Commandments. It's another thing to claim the name of Jesus Christ and to continue to go on sinning as if there has not been any transformation made in your life. To trample underfoot the Son of God, which is ultimately saying that you're treating what he has done as worthless. And then you can see that not only are you abandoning the, the center core of your faith, which is the seed of the fruit that the Lord is wanting to have his kingdom grow off of. We also know in the admonition when Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. Not only do we go from one point of abandoning the seed of the message of salvation, when we neglect to be with his people, 
We are neglecting the messengers of salvation. Who's ultimately, again, in Christ. We are the messengers of salvation. And we should have the message of salvation. And if we cannot be those who preach the message of salvation, if we take lightly the sins in which we have been saved from. Therefore, we profane the blood of the covenant, as it says there in verse 29. Basically disregarding the forgiveness of sin by entering it back into it. And this outrages the spirit of grace. We're taking lightly that grace. And so therefore we believe and live a lie. God says that vengeance is his. And he will judge particularly his people. We might think that we have the fire insurance by claiming the name of Jesus Christ. But if we abandon, we profane and trample an outrageous spirit of grace. We should have only the expectation of that judgment to come to us. And even worse for us than one who would not even have known about Jesus Christ. But if you go back and you look at the passages where it talks about God judging his people, he also says that he will vindicate his people. He will vindicate. He will also hold together those who reflect that grace and that love that's in their life. And he reminds them here, as he goes to verse 22, he says, or excuse me, 32, he says, recall the former days. See, these are, these are Christians that have a little bit of mileage on them. They've, they've, been, they've already experienced the path of what it is to be a Christian to a certain degree, but they're needing to be encouraged because their endurance is low right now. They have a need for endurance. And so the writer to the Hebrews is saying, go back. And look at what your calling is. And he has three E's here. He has enlightened, endured, and exposed. To remember these three particular E's. He says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, which means that you were given this truth, when you have come to know this truth, when you encountered the truth of Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah, he is the Savior of your sins, and he is the one who has risen and reigning Go back and remember that time when you were first introduced to Jesus Christ. And then secondly, remember that you endured a hard struggle with sufferings and sometimes being publicly exposed to to reproach and affliction. We see here that, that after they were enlightened, that there had to be this calling to endurance right off the bat. That there was a hard struggle That they had to take on this confession without wavering. The word for struggle here is the Greek word athelasin or (laughs) alethasin. I'm not really great at pronouncing it. But if you think of if you can hear what I'm saying there, alethasin is it's the same word that you get the word athletics from. Again, going back to this word of struggle in a enduring way. That word is both used contextually in athletic competition and also in military conflict. And we see even from Paul's instruction, that requires training. It requires endurance and maintaining a focus to what is ahead. That this endurance is going to be a struggle like a military conflict, like combat. Or like some kind of rigorous sport. I mean, if we think about it, when, if you think of any kind of team or any kind of 
battalion or squad, if they don't have that enduring training, I mean, if you think about, let me just rewind, going back to that whole movie analogy, where if people are just sitting in their bedrooms and living room with a joystick is a lot different than experiencing the G's of a car going 200 miles per hour around a curve. You have to be able to endure the reality of that. We don't want people who are fighting battles for us or who are in sports competitions just doing their training in their pajamas. <laughs> we want them to have been in the field. We want them to have gone through the sweat and the struggle. The same is true for the church. It's interesting, the word, the word squad that you would normally have in some kind of military grouping is a grouping typically of 12. If you think about that, like the 12 disciples or the 12 tribes, we, we see that, that, that group of, of believers is like a military squad in that we come together and, and we have to be training one another. We have to endure one another and be ready to fight in the conflict because this is real battle and the stakes are higher than even being in a 200 mile an hour car. It requires that we, one, that we know our objective and who we're fighting for. Again, think about those three points of the let us is we have to have our central focus in Jesus Christ. That's who we are fighting for. He's the one that who has ultimately accomplished the victory. And that defines for us, number two, the rules of engagement. The rules of how to take on. If we, if we don't know what team we're on, then we're already in trouble. <laughs> then secondly, if we don't know the rules of the game, then we're likely going to lose right off the bat as well. And then thirdly, we need to understand who are we fighting with? Who is our team? We need to be able to have a unified opponent, but we need to be a corporate body team as we live out these rules of engagement. We see here that they were having to endure the hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. We see how this transforms from not just having the centrality of understanding who is our central hope, and not only just being enduring the faithfulness without wavering, but as we are doing this with others, the body of Christ, we see how this develops, just like the other three points, to be a corporate activity. We must rely on the team. I know I've shared this story many times, and I'll do it again because some of you probably haven't heard this, and I'll, I just love this, this story of a friend of mine that I was in youth group with when I was in high school, he had an opportunity to go to ranger school, and he was very good, army ranger school, and he excelled at every single thing better than everyone else that was in his particular class. He was the top. He ran the fastest. He climbed the wall the fastest. He endured having to be out in the swamp the longest. He did everything better than everybody else, but he didn't get to become a ranger. Because there's an evaluation at the end that is a peer evaluation. And everything he did, he did it with the focus of himself in achieving the best. And he always left his team behind. And so therefore, when they did an evaluation, and you cannot become a ranger unless you ace your peer evaluation. You have to ace it. You have to come together with the body that you've been given 
to take on that particular struggle with. Thankfully, he did learn with humility. He shared that with me with humility. And he was able to eventually go on and he was in special operations and he was on many different combat missions in the Middle East. He learned his lesson that he could not leave his team behind. Here we see where the writer to the Hebrews is merging this hope that we have in Christ and this enduring in our own faithfulness is interwoven with the body of Christ and having to suffer through their weaknesses, their captivity in prison, and even assuming that their property is really nothing, that ultimately they knew that their own property that was being plundered. We don't know the particular situation that's going on here with these Hebrew Christians, but it says that they accepted the plundering of their property since they knew that themselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Their focus wasn't in on their life. They were willing to share and to give up of their own things, their own lives, and to suffer with the body of Christ. They had compassion, and they accepted the path that God had given them. So he reminds them of the path that they've already taken, and he commends them that that is faithfulness, that is living out the led us's. It is holding on to Christ. It is enduring without wavering. And it's being together and serving one another in the church. And so he's telling them to remember that and to not to throw away their confidence. To go back again to this understanding of confidence. This stirring up, this boldness, this fiery boldness of hope. Not to give up because there is a great reward in the end. That there is a reward that is on top of that justification of this great sanctification and glorification in Jesus Christ. And he reminds them they need this endurance. That they have every reason if they endure and hold on to the will of God that they will receive what was promised from God. And so they were, it's an encouragement of admonition. It's not to beat over their head that they need to get their life together so that they can be able to have a, they can be a good citizen or they could just be good church members that tithe well and, and they can have a good name for themselves. It's actually just the opposite of saying that if you take the path of Jesus Christ, it is likely that you will suffer. You will receive reproach and affliction. You may even have your property Plundered. You may have to go to prison or suffer along with those who are in prison. But the reward that is to come, the everlasting reward, the pleasure that it gives the Father is far greater. And the glory that is going to come when the Son is glorified in the end, we get to share in that same glory. And so therefore we are to live by faith knowing that he is going to return. It says, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. It's interesting there, that wording there, when you read the first part of 38, it says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. When we often look at that, my righteous one, we kind of think about Jesus. 
shall live by faith. We know that Jesus' faithfulness is what's being highlighted here. We saw that in last Sunday's passage. But then it kind of comes back onto us. But if we shrink back, we know that Jesus is not going to shrink back. So therefore, we should not shrink back. And the reason why we should not shrink back, because if we really hold on with confidence that Jesus is our great hope in life and in death, then we are not of those who shrink back. That's not our team. That's not who we are. That's not a part of our squad. Our squad is the one who holds on in faith. And therefore, we are not destroyed. And therefore, our souls will be preserved. I encourage you to go and read 1 John Chapter 2 and verse 3. This is a, excuse me, not chapter 2, verse 3. 1 John chapter 2 and chapter 3. There's a lot of parallel themes here that we see in those three let us's. Well, both in the, in the we have, that we have the confidence in the blood of Jesus Christ, and then we also have the identity of the body of Christ. I'm just going to go through a few verses. I'm not going to read. I would love to read. You know how much I love to read the scriptures when I'm preaching. But for to keep the time short, I'm just going to highlight a few of the verses there just to prove my point that there's some of the same themes here. We see in the very first verse of 1 John chapter 2, it says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It's encouraging them. They say, number one, my children... My little children, it's identifying them as these are children of God. This is not just talking to the world. This is talking to people who are identified as the children of God. And that these particular letters are for their encouragement so that they would not sin. And then you should recognize the next part because we've already read it in our confession of sin this morning. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Again, it goes back and it hones in. Focus on our advocate, Jesus Christ. Verses 4 through 6 of chapter 2, it says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It's really important to remember what Maharus told us this morning about the monetaristic work of our justification. It is in Christ alone. It is in his work alone. That is what our assurance is in, is in that blood of Jesus Christ. But as we have been those who are now able to claim that we are his children and we say we know him, we should be walking with him in what he has called us. And then in verse 10 through 11, it says, Whoever loves his brother abides in that light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Again, it's not just a matter of saying, okay, I know Jesus and I'm following Jesus. You cannot be faithful in walking with Jesus and not be loving your brother and walking with your brother. And sister, in Christ. This is why we see that the scriptures are teaching us that you cannot be faithful to Christ without being with his church. Because that's what he calls us to do. He says, the, whatever you do to the least of these, the weakest, the most annoying, the most frustrating Christian, the one that doesn't have all of his theology together, If we're not willing to walk with the least of these, 
then we're not really walking with Christ. And then we're reminded in verse 18 and 19, it says, children, it is the last hour. Again, remembering the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And as he speaks about the Antichrist, you have to remember that the people who are most debilitating to the work of Jesus Christ, the people who are going to receive the greatest judgment, the Antichrist, where did they come from? Well, it says here, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. They would have endured with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. The distinguishing factor is not whether or not you meet in a church building on Sunday morning. The distinguished factor is not whether or not you call yourself a Christian. It's whether or not you have the confidence in Jesus Christ. Whether you truly identify with the great priest that we have by being the house of God. And that you hold on to Jesus Christ. That you endure without wavering. And that you endure together and strive together with the body of Jesus Christ. We have so many people preaching from the pulpit all kinds of things. And it's not Jesus Christ in many churches. Many pastors, and we go all the way back 50 years ago, when the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America said that they're not going to discipline their pastors if they are not convinced that Jesus Christ is God. And they're still pastors preaching in a church. The centrality of Jesus Christ has been removed. And therefore, it has broken apart so many things in the church. Verse 28 and 29, it says, Little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence to not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It almost makes you wonder if John is the one who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. It's the same structure. It's the same three points over and over again. And we see it again in John chapter 3. He reminds them that you're called the children of God. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one abides in him who keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If you're going to live a lifestyle of sin, then you can't say that you know Jesus Christ. It's not saying that if you have sin in your life and you're stumbling in it here and there, but it should not be definitive of who you are. And you should be quick to be those who repent and turn to him. But if you're living in sin, if you're given to sin, there is no reason to assume that you are actually of him. Again, I want to be very clear about this. We are being told many times in Scripture that we are still those who are in the flesh, and so we will still struggle in this fight. Again, remember, the letters are written to the church to help them from not sinning. If they had already achieved perfection, these letters would not be necessary. They're necessary because we are still weak, and we are still frail because He is taking us to that place. Of perfection and glorification. We are not yet there. It's already in him, but not yet in us. And so to close, I want us to remember that the ultimate call for us is the gospel to repent and to believe. 
to turn away from our sins, to our weaknesses of letting ourselves be deceived by lies that are proclaimed by so many organizations today, that are letting our focuses be turned and our hope and our confidence be turned on things that are passing, and that we would not be content to continue on in sin, that we would endure without wavering, that we would be in His Word and that we would be on our knees begging the Lord to put the spirit of grace and obedience in our life. And that we would not shrink back away from each other and assume that we can be faithful in our pajamas at home, but that we would come together. And not just coming here is not the part. It's walking together, praying for each other. The reason they, These people here, when they were doing right, they were suffering with those who were in prison. It's saying that, it didn't say that they necessarily were in prison, but they were carrying those burdens of whatever these other Christians were experiencing. And you can't carry those burdens if you don't know these people. (laughs) If you're not in their lives. Carry the burdens of their own captivities to whatever it is that they are captive to. Pray for them. Pour out yourselves to them. As Paul was wrapping up his writing to Timothy, it says it very well. I've already referenced this once. And this is where I will close in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 6 through 8. It says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I ask you, brothers and sisters, are you looking forward to his return? Are you looking forward to his return, not just so that we can get out of this place, so that struggles and difficulties will pass? And that's a good reason I feel that way too. The more and more I watch the news or just see the culture in general, I'm just like, Lord, I I don't want to be here anymore. But are we looking forward to his appearing in the same spirit that Paul is saying here? That because of what he has done in our life, that we can say we fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith that we have endured And that we are looking forward to the reward of how God has used our life in the furthering of his kingdom. That we have this confidence, not in our own righteousness, but that the hope and the faith that we held on to manifested itself in fruit. That we look forward to glorifying the Lord with our lives. We already know that he has forgiven us of our sins. But are we looking forward to the fruit that pours forth in faithfulness? Because he is faithful. May it be that we would love his appearing, that we would not be those who would have to fear his appearing. But that we could look forward in fullness, not only in checking out, but looking forward to the glory that he has promised. Let us pray.